seated. Let's give these kids a hand for helping us out this morning. Pretty good looking kids considering the parents, I tell you. <laughs> of course, I'm speaking of their fathers, okay? <laughs> if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. We will continue our series this morning, In Him, For Him, and of course, as we've said so many times, the first three chapters of Ephesians is dedicated to that whole idea the whole theological principle, the fact that when we come to know Christ, we're in Christ. Uh, well, then in chapters four, through four, five, and six, Paul changes the conversation a little bit and talks about the fact that, you know, we are still in Christ and, and there's certain things that will look different as a result of us being in Christ. And so there's things that play out in our lives that become for Christ. And that's where we are this morning and we'll continue that this morning. If you look at the title of the message, the subtitle, I've entitled it The Byproducts of a Transformed Life. Now, of course, a byproduct is the result of an action. Okay, that's what a byproduct is. If you say, okay, give me a definition of that. What does it look like? It's, it's literally uh, the result of an action. Of course, the action that's been taken, that has taken place in our lives is the fact that Christ now lives in us. We are born again. And, and, and then what's interesting about the byproduct here, the action is something that is continuing. It's a process that the Bible talks about, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Now, a byproduct can also be a side effect, okay? The whole idea of a side effect. Now, how many of you have ever read the side or, or went online to look at some of the side effects to the prescription drugs you take? How many of you are horrified by those things? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, when we start reading that list, you're like, oh, my goodness, is it worth taking the thing? Uh, but let me just say this about a byproduct or a side effect. It can be both negative or it can be positive, and, of course, in the context of Christ, in the context of what we're looking at today, we're looking at the positive side uh, or the byproduct of a transformed life. So look at the introduction on your outline. Jesus guaranteed the potential for a transformed life through his death, burial, and resurrection. There is no transformed life there is no, there any, unless there's Christ, and he's going through what, what God has prescribed, and that is his death, burial, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit provides what is necessary to live a transformed life, and that's through a process called sanctification. And many of you know and have heard of that word. It's a long word, but it's the process of maturing in Christ, becoming more like Christ. Of course, it's also this. Sanctification is the process of taking off what needs to be taken off and put on what needs to be put on. And there's two key verses in Scripture that, that seem to give us a description of what this looks like. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is what? In Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now that there, if you say, strip that down, tell me what that literally means. It literally means there's some things that were there, no longer there, and there's something that's there now that has never existed before. The whole idea of taking off and putting on. Here's another way of looking at it. Romans chapter 12. We looked at these verses last week, but it says, Do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. What will the process look like? What will the outcome be? That you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. But then Paul reminds us, as we looked at the verses last week, chapter 4, look at verse 22. He says this, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on, see, verse 22, the putting off or taking off, verse 24, that you may put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And, of course, we looked at those verses last week. So verse 22 talks about the taking off or the putting off. Verse 24, the putting on. And what does that look like? Well, he tells us in the verses we're looking at today. So the putting off of the old man, the renewing of the mind, and the putting off or the putting on the new man are events that take place in the life, in the life of a person who is born again. That process, what all that looks like is called transformation. Now, again, let me remind you from our illustration last week. And I, I think, yeah, this is the coat. We'll, we'll go with the black one right now. The, this coat represents, let's just say, everything in my life before Christ that needs to be taken off. 
Okay, so it's not a matter, remember we said this last week, it's not a matter of me sending this off to the dry cleaner and say, hey, how about cleaning this up for me? Or even me taking my own initiative to try to clean it up. I will never be able to do that. That's not what transformation is. It's not me doing the cleaning. It's not me sending it off. It's the fact that Christ does a work in my life. So it's literally a taking off. Okay, you need, you need this image in your head here. It's a taking off and then putting on something else. And of course, the whole imagery here that Paul is using is the whole idea of putting on Christ. Okay, putting on what? His righteousness, his provision. So it's taking something off and putting something on. So, so here's what I want you to think about as we make our way through this sermon. Right now, and by the way, transformation or sanctification is a process. None of you have completed the process. You won't until you see him face to face. Okay? You're always going to be in a process. My question for you this morning is, currently, right now, what is the Holy Spirit asking you to take off? This is about your life. Something needs to be removed. And why is he calling you to put on? It's very interesting that it seems like every time in Scripture, there's not only the talk of something being taken off, but it seems like every time there's a talk of something being taken off, there's a conversation about something that's going to take its place to be put on. How many of you have noticed that in Scripture? Paul does it all the time in his epistles. These things need to be taken off. He gives you a list. These things need to be put on. Because every time there's that transition, what's taking place is the fact that I'm taking this off and I'm replacing it with something else that God desires in my life, okay? And that's done through his Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to take this off because it gets hot up here as the service goes on, okay? So that's the imagery I want you to think of as we make our way through the sermon. So the first thing I want you to see are transformed words. Now, don't raise your hand. But how many of you could use a good transformation of, of how you use words sometimes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we all do. Thank you for your honesty. All right. In, in, in verse 25 and 29, in verses 25 and 29, Paul deals with the area of our speech. The things we say and how we say them are indications of the, con, of, of the condition of our heart. And y'all, that is so true. James tells us that. Uh, Proverbs tell us that. The things that are in our heart will eventually be revealed. How? Through our mouths, through our conversation, through our speech. And so we can tell a lot about the person uh, and what's going on in their heart uh, by why, how they conduct themselves with their speech. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have been around someone who had terrible speech or terrible, I mean, it's just everything that came out of their mouth and you said you, you were able to size them up just because of what you saw there. Yeah, we can, can't we? It reveals a lot of who we are. You ever slammed your finger before? <laughs> Some of you are like, you got to give me a break on that one, okay? No, but really, what's there? I mean, it's what brings it out. When our heart is right, our words will be right. When our hearts are out of step with the Lord, our words will reveal it. Our words, listen, have the potential to be even more destructive than our actions. James tells us that. Can be more destructive. We will, own, listen, we will not only be accountable for our actions, we're also going to be accountable for the words that we use. Jesus said it very clearly, Matthew chapter 12. But I say to you that every idle word, every careless word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It means that words reveal many times our eternal destination. Now, it doesn't mean we can say something that, that takes us off a path if we know we're going to heaven, we've trusted in Christ, okay, now we're going over here. No, what it is is the whole idea, and the language here is because I am on my way to heaven, because I have given my life to Christ, it reveals that I'm on that path other than the, rather than the path that I once was on. Okay, and, and so there's very clear communication that, and, and how many of you sometimes find that haunting that we'll be judged by our words? I mean, think about some of the things that we're capable of saying. I mean, you take a, a couple, a husband and wife, let them go at it for a while. It's amazing what comes out, isn't it? A brother and a sister, an employer with an employee, all kinds of ways, just all kinds of So what are we transforming here? Paul's going to give us a couple of things as it relates to our words. Look on your outline. Transform words, taking off or take off lying. Now, we seem to live in a nation of liars. How many of you picked up on that? <laughs> I mean, it's true. Let me give you some proof. 
A survey revealed that 91% of those surveyed, 91%, lie routinely about matters that they consider trivial. Nine out of 10 people, more than that a little bit. 36% lie about important matters. 86% lie to parents. 75% lie to friends. 73% lie to siblings. I thought that one was okay, actually. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And 69% lie to spouses. Now, how many of you, that right there is just, you mean everyone's lying to me? (laughs) Based on this, there's a good chance that's going on. And, And when you look at this, it's very disturbing. Let me give you a list of common everyday lies. How many of you have ever used this one? The check is in the mail. What that normally means, it's on the counter You've had the intention to send it, but you had not had the money in the account yet. But as soon as you do, it's on its way out to the mailbox. <laughs> I mean, it's a, how about this? I'll start my diet tomorrow. <laughs> we're, we're lying to ourselves, aren't we? My, we? We service what we sell. Give me your number, and I'll call you right back. Here, here's a good one. One size fits all. Your luggage isn't lost, it's only misplaced. Leave your resume and we'll keep it on file. Don't you love this one? This hurts me, what? More than it hurts you. I just need five minutes of your time. Don't you love that one? How about this one? Money back guaranteed. And then here's another one. Open wide, this may sting a little. A little? Really? I'm talking, never mind, I won't, I won't mess up. Okay. <laughs> we lie when we embellish stories to make ourselves look better or to make people look worse. We lie when we change the facts to spare someone's feelings. I think a lot of us thought that's just being kind, but we can lie in that form. Uh, we lie when we alter the truth in any way, when we cheat on our taxes, when we cheat in school on a test, when we make promises we know we cannot keep, when we flatter others, when we make excuses to cover our failures and shortcomings, when we withhold information in order to mislead or deceive. We seem to take light, a lying lightly, even many times as Christians. But again, let me remind you. Look at what Paul says. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 25. Therefore, in light of the fact you need to be putting off or taking off something and putting on, put away lying. Let's start right there. If there's anything that needs to be removed, let's get rid of lying. Now, why do you think he would start with the lying? Because listen, if we don't have trust, if we can't communicate trust, If we can't find ourselves listening to one another and trusting one another, we don't have anything. Whether you're talking about a family, whether you're talking about a church family, a society, you don't have anything. And so he says, put this aside. You see, God takes lying seriously. I want you to look at this. To me, some of these uh, verses in Proverbs are very haunting. But look at what it says in Proverbs chapter 6. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him. A proud look a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among, among the brethren. I want you to notice that of these seven, look at what two of them are dealing with. A lying tongue. And what does the Bible say? God hates it. And isn't it amazing how sometimes we can take that so lightly? But God hates it. Jesus took it lying seriously. Here's, look at this verse. You are of your father, the devil, <laughs> and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He speaks from his own nature. That's what that's saying. For he is a liar and a father of it. And he's basically saying, you, he's, if you really look at it, he's saying you're his children. You're falling right in line with him. Jesus took it very seriously. But, but how about these lies? How about the lies the enemy tells us? How many of you have ever known that the enemy, he just speaks lies to you? He, he seeks to deceive you. How about the fact that sometimes we lie to ourselves? You ever lied to yourself? 
Oh, yeah. The, the lies in any form can be very, very destructive. So what are we to do? We are to take off lying and put on, look on your outline, we need to put on truth. We as believers are to be characterized as truth. That means when people think of us, they think of a truthful person, not someone who is deceptive. Now, why would that be the case? The one who is truth, it, listen to this, is our Lord and Savior. So truth should characterize us. Why? Because the one who saved us, he is truth. Here, here's another good one. We, were, we are indwelt by, by what the Bible calls the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. And so if that's the case, then guess what? We are someone who, who not only should be speaking truth, people should look at us and say they are characterized, they are truthful. So look at what he says in verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now let's break this down further. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. It says this, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. So we're talking about spiritual armor here. How many of you ever studied spiritual armor? Truth is vital. I mean, the belt of truth, that's what he's talking about. Belt, uh, bringing that belt of truth. Now think about all the armor that, that's there. Uh, the sword hangs on the belt. The, the, the breastplate is held together with a belt. The, uh, the belt of truth. Everything is held together with truth, not deception. Not lying, it's very important. Here's another verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God from which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word from men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Listen, if we want to see a work of God being done in and through our life, it always comes by way of truth. It always does. Here's another one, 2 Timothy 2. Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of what? Truth. Not the word of men, not the word of the society, not the word of Oprah, not the word of, I mean, Mr. Phil or Dr. Phil, whatever his name is. It's, it's, it's all about what the word of truth says. We're to stand in it, the Bible says. We are to gird ourselves in truth. We are, we are to be characterized as people of truth. Next, transform words. Take off corrupt speech. Skip down to verse 39, uh, 29. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Now, when our words, listen, are good and wholesome, it gives evidence that we belong to the Lord. When our speech is foul and rotten, it gives evidence that we do not know the Lord. Several months ago, Tina and I were out to eat. And we went to a restaurant we don't normally go to. And, and we were sitting there, and the waitress, I mean, she, she had a... How many of you ever seen uh, uh, someone who had beauty, but it wasn't necessarily something you saw outwardly? You just saw beauty in the person? And, and she just comes up, and she had this very sweet disposition. I mean, I mean, she was... I mean, I was sitting there, and I looked at Tina, and I said, she's got to be a Christian. I mean, look at how she's conducting herself. Look at, look at the words that she's using. Even her explaining the menu to us was encouraging to us. <laughs> of course, we were hungry, so it didn't take much. But lo and behold, she, she's sitting there and near the end of the conversation, or near the end of our meal. We look there and say, are you a Christian? She said, yes, I am. Young girl. And I, I mean, it, it was just amazing to see that on display. And we didn't even know if she was or not. But there seemed to be a connection there. We saw something there. There was something about her. It was something that was revealed through the words that she used and the way she carried herself. James chapter 1 says this. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle or control his tongue, he deceives his, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. <laughs> that means there's nothing to it. That means it's empty. Here's another one, Matthew chapter 15. Jesus once said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles the man. And that's so true, isn't it? Here we go. Take off corrupt speech. Put on encouragement. 
Look at verse 29 again. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. The word grace there in the end of verse 29, when it says to impart grace, it could have easily said, because the words are used interchangeably in Scripture, it could have easily said that it may uh, impart gifts to the hearers. Gifts. How many of you have ever given someone a gift with, with, with what you've told them? Let me just tell you this. I get gifts from you guys all the time. I mean, a, a note of encouragement, a card. Several, there's several class uh, connection groups or individuals. They'll just send a card. And they'll say, hey, I just want it's, it's, They're building me up. They're, they're, and, and I hope I do the same thing for you on Sundays. And I'm here to help edify the, not only the body as a whole, but you as an individual. And guess what? It's not me really edifying you. I've just chosen to be used by, the word, by God and his word to edify you with the word of God. That's what has, has to build us up. Not my opinion, but what God's word says. So... Again, when you think of these things, when the heart is right, the tongue will reveal it by speaking words that help others grow. We can edify others by being encouraging, uplifting, but sometimes constructive in our communication. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 gives us an idea of what it may look like. We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, those who are disruptive, those who are disorderly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and I love this one, and just be patient with all of them. Because it does take patience to deal with, with people. And, and with their issues. And what they're going through. Here's another one. Preach the word. This is not just for a preacher boy or someone who teaches. It, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. That's not only given to teachers and pastors. That's also given to each one of us. That needs to be the words that we use. Here's another thing we, that Paul points out. Look at this, uh, transformed wrath. Now, let's go back and remember who we were before we came to Christ. Paul introduced us to this in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is who we were before. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. That means you were allowing the world to squeeze you into its mold to give you your operating orders. He says, according to the prince of the power of the air, it wasn't only the world working against you. The enemy was working there too. And the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Also, it's talking about the spirit that's within us. All, things, all these things were working against us. It was a hopeless situation. Among whom also all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were and, and by nature children of wrath... Just as others who followed this way. Children of wrath. That was the description of who we were before we came to Christ. We were children in which the wrath of God was eventually going to touch us. Look at verse 5. Skip down to verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. How did he do it? By grace you've been saved. So, so there's this whole idea. So, so what does it look like? Look on your outline. How, how does it translate to us? This is who we once were. We were children of wrath. We were transformed. Now we're no longer children of wrath. Something transformed in us about the, the, where we stand before God. But guess what? Now that that happens within us, now people, the way they stand before us, that needs to change. If something changed in our standing before God, and it was him who did that, therefore the standing that others have before us must change. Okay, let's look at what that may look like. We need to take off anger and bitterness. You ever been around someone bitter? Let me tell you one thing I've noticed about bitterness. If it's not taken care of, the older we get, the more bitter we become. How many, I mean, I hate to just, I'm just going to put it out. How many of you have met people who are just older, bitter people? You ever been around that? It took years for them to get that way. It did. And there was a seed that was planted somewhere along the line. And guess what? It, it took root and it continued to this day. And what you may be looking at is the product of something that happened over 40 years. You don't just get there overnight. You grow into that person. And, and the thing that we need to understand is he's warning us. Look at what he says in verse 26 of Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, he says this. He says, be angry and do not sin. Now, now this is very interesting. Let's, let's take it in two parts. First of all, there's a whole idea of being angry. 
Now, this is in the imperative mode. So this means it's command. So the first two words says this, be angry. What does that imply? It's okay to be angry. You ever been angry? <laughs> Guess what? Not all of it's bad. Now, now, it's a positive command for us to express anger at times. Listen to this. The word anger refers to deep-seated determination and settled conviction. Okay, when anger is moved in the proper direction, that's what it looks. It's deep-seated determination and, and, and settled conviction. That means when something comes against that, there's a response of anger that is poured out. Okay, now let's look at this. Jesus was angry with the Pharisees who resented his healing of a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Do you remember, if you're part of our Sunday night studies, the Pharisees were always angry with Jesus. They thought he broke laws, the laws of God. And what's interesting is basically Jesus, he got angry with them in their attitude. He was angry with those who turned the house of God into a place of thieves. So much so, guess what? He started whipping them out of the temple. You ever, you ever given your child a whipping? You ever done that? That's healthy at times, by the way. Some of you may not agree, but it is. It's healthy. And I'm going to be honest with you. What's interesting about that is the fact that Jesus took it and he, I mean, he was basically disciplined the children that were there who were acting unruly and that's what was going on in the temple. He, here's another one. He was angered, he, he was angered by anything that misrepresented the heavenly father or the true worship of God. We see signs of this all in scripture. He was angered by those who used religion as a club to oppress the people of God. He was angered by hypocrisy and false religion. All that's clearly identified in the Gospels. What about our anger? We should be angered by the murder of innocent children. We should be angered or angry that the family is being un undermined and destroyed in our society. We should be angry when the weak, the poor, and the less fortunate are mistreated. We should be angered by injustice anywhere we find it. We should be angered by the assaults on God's word and the doctrines of the faith. Those things should anger us. But then, then there's the rest of the verse. Be angry and sin not. How many of you, I, I remember years ago when I discovered that it's possible to be angry and not sin. But let me just say this. Did you know that we can be angry at the right things that we should be angry against and still sin? But because we're, we, 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 we become cynical. We become angered to the point that it disrupts our perspective. Is that ever? I think I'm going through some of that right now, to be honest with you. And I'm having to reshape my anger. I'm having to look at it closely and say, has this carried me? Has my anger towards these things that we should be taking a stand against, these things that have, are deep, is it, is it carrying me to a point that I'm actually sinning? It is possible that that's the case. Because guess what? The sinner, listen, still possibly could experience the grace of God if I could get my perspective and my attitude right, even though they may be in what I'm angered about. And God could use me as a resource to bring them to that. As he's called me to, and you to come alongside those and help those to see the, the things that need to be taken care of in their life. You see, we have a hard time controlling most aspects of our anger. Most of the time, our anger is selfish in nature. Much of the time, we are angry because we are hurt, offended, and feel slighted. Much of the time, our anger centers on us and how we feel. Sinful anger is always self-serving and defensive. But God's word reads this. Look here, Romans chapter 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, to live peaceably with all people or all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. One pastor said concerning these verses, I love this. One pastor said it, look, it really looks like this. I'm not going to get even, but I'm definitely going to tell God on you. <laughs> I like that. If you are angry about something that affects you, how you feel, what you think, it can easily turn to sinful anger. If you are angry about the harm done to God and others, that could be righteous anger. Here's the test. Are you angry because this is happening to you? 
Or does your anger exist because a terrible wrong is being done to someone else or if it's an offense to God? That's the test. Too many times we get angry, we take it, we become defensive, we, it, it turns into something else. So look on your outline. We must take sinful anger and, and, and take it off and put on forgiveness and freedom. So, so here's what it says. Look at verse 26 again. It says, be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your, on your wrath, nor give place or no, nor give opportunity to the devil. Now this verse means this. You need to get a handle of your anger quickly or there's going to be dire consequences that will follow, okay? How, how many of you have ever had an outburst and it's like, ooh, first of all, you were shocked where it came from. You ever, you ever been there? You're shocked. I mean, it's like, where did that come from? Uh, sometimes my wife will do that. It shocks me. That, no, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. But I'm a little more bold. She's not in the service this morning. But anyway, um, but, but here's what I want you to understand. We need to realize that our anger, if left uh, uncontrolled, can lead to disaster. Anger that is allowed to simmer turns into resentment. Resentment soon turns into bitterness. Bitterness chokes the life, peace, and joy out of you. And guess what? Even those around you. You ever seen someone who was so bitter that it seemed to even fall to their children and the people around them? I mean, it it doesn't just stop with you. Everyone around you are affected by it. And it's there. You see it. Listen, there was once a classified ad that read this. Wedding dress for sale, never worn. Will trade for a 38 pistol. <laughs> That's someone not dealing with their anger, right? Any anger we harbor in our souls, if it is allowed to run to its ultimate conclusion... Listen to this. We'll permit Satan to get the upper hand in our lives. I want you to write this verse down. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. I don't have time to read it this morning. That is the whole idea of the fact that if I let anger translate into resentment, translate into bitterness, then guess what? I have turned over the upper hand of the management of my life over to the enemy. How many of you would say, That's, that sounds pretty healthy? No. He'll use it to destroy you. When the enemy gets the upper hand in our life, he will feed our anger to the point, listen, that we'll feel justified that it's in our life. He does it. He feeds it. Here's what he does. He, self-pity, pride, self-righteousness, vengeance, defense of our rights, and every other sort of selfish sin and violation to the plan of God. He will feed it. He will, he will just bring, I mean, he'll give you all kinds of things to think about where you feel justified in what you're feeling. And so many times people are not even aware that he's even working. They're just kind of going through life, feeling good about what they are angry about and bitter about. It's bringing all kinds of destruction. Hebrews chapter 12 says it this way. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. You know what he's saying this? If you're not on that path, you're not going to ever see God working in your life. If you're not on the path, he just said. And then he says this. Here's something else you need to pay attention to. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. That's God's best for you. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. He's saying this, this thing, this thing it could be disastrous. When we allow God to take care of the wrongs done to us, we can then more easily forgive and find freedom. Did you know that? I've had it in my life. I've been bitter. I've been angry. I feel like someone has, has wronged me in the past, and I've eventually had to give it over to God. I had to eventually say this, God, I can't live like this anymore. i got to hand it over. Let me tell you where, how anger and bitterness spreads. Let me give you an illustration. In the spring of 1894, the Baltimore Orioles went to Boston to play a routine baseball game, just a simple baseball game. But what happened that day was anything but routine. The Orioles' John McGraw got into a fight with the Boston third baseman. Within minutes, all the players from both teams joined in the brawl. How many of you have ever seen that on TV before? You know, you, you seen that happen? Oh, yeah. The, the fight quickly spread to, into the stands. Now, I don't know that I've seen this so much. It went into the stands. Among the fans, the conflict went from bad to worse. Someone set fire to the stands, and the entire ballpark burned to the ground. 
Not only that, but the fire spread to 107 other Boston buildings as well. Would you say that's a beautiful picture? Not a beautiful, a destructive picture of how anger can spread and how destructive it really can be. What I just described is a physical representation of that. The same thing can happen in your soul. The same thing. And, and, and you know what happens? You know what I started noticing when I held on to bitterness in my life? I started seeing it spread into areas I had no idea that it was capable of spreading into. Into my other relationships. I mean, it, I mean, I was shocked at what it was capable of doing. But eventually it must be dealt with. So, so sinful anger can produce massive destruction when not properly addressed. We need to take off anger and bitterness and put on forgiveness and freedom. How do you do this? He tells us here. Look at verse 26 again. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your, ang- on your wrath. You've got to deal with it quickly. You've got to deal with it. You can't give the enemy room to operate. That's what verse 27 says. Or, or you're going to give the enemy a place, an opportunity to take up residence and, and a platform in your life. Not a good place to be. Next, transform work. It's amazing all the things that Paul's pulling out here. It's almost like he's going in all kinds of directions. He says, take off stealing and laziness. He's basically telling us that. So look at verse 28. He says, let him who stole or steal, uh, stole, steal no longer. So, So he's saying, don't do that. Paul uses the image of a man who was a thief And then who comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior as an illustration of how repentance and salvation completely changes one's life. So this person before Christ is lazy and greedy. He or she wants that which others have labored to obtain. They want the finer things of life, so they take what they want to fulfill their selfish desires. And they do it with no thought of what their actions cost the victims. Now, let me tell you what's happening that we're seeing in our society. One of the reasons for this is that we have become an entitlement society. Look at, I don't like to bring politics in it, but let's just be honest. And I'm talking about both sides. Look at, look at what's being said in all these debates. How many of you have seen, some of you can't bear to watch it. I'm, I'm like you. Sometimes I just got to just shut the thing off. But let me just say this. The one thing that you're seeing in both parties is everyone wants to give everything to everyone. I mean, it's, it's, what they're doing is they're catering, listen, to an entitlement society. That's what they're doing. They're catering it. And guess what? That's not biblical. That is not what you find in Scripture. And I'm going to prove it to you in just a moment. I'm going to show you the verses. That is not a biblical view of how society and an individual should live their life. Many have been trained by parents and the government to live with their hands out for everything they want. No one wants to work anymore. Many want the government and parents to give them everything. And guess what? Many parents and many government-sponsored programs are giving them that. Many never stop to think that someone has to pay for what they're taking. Those who refuse to work and want handouts from the government and others are just as guilty as those who steal. Just going to be honest with you. Now, let me tell you this. You got to understand this side of it too. There are some that can't work. That God's made provision for those. Those who are not capable. Those in which it's not an opportunity given them to work. That's a whole different matter. We're talking about someone who is fully capable and not wishing and not going in that direction. So we're talking about two different things here. Let me give you the, te- let me give you the scripture that backs this up. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. For even when we are with you, we command you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Again, this is not a reference to someone who can't, who's, never, who's not given those opportunities. Listen, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus that they work in quietness and eat their own bread, the labor from their own hands. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. What he's doing, he's addressing to those who think they're sitting there and they're trying to do their best. They're doing everything they need to do. They're doing good. And it seems to be getting nowhere. It seems that everything is happening around them. It's coming easy for them. They're getting these, I mean, and they're frustrated. You know what Paul's saying? 
He said, you do what you've been called to do. You don't become a part of the problem. You do, you do what is good. That's the way he's telling them. A child who takes a few dollars from a parent's wallet is a thief. Pocketing the extra change a clerk gives you by mistake is stealing. Failing to report income to the IRS is stealing. Lying about insurance claims is stealing. Overestimating an estimate that causes a customer to pay more than necessary, listen, is stealing. Failing to pay a debt is stealing. Claiming more hours than you work is stealing. Not honoring God with the tithe is stealing. And Paul's addressing this. So what do we take off? Stealing and laziness. What do we put on? Productivity and generosity. Look at verse 28. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what, I'm sorry, 28, verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his or her hands, what is good, that he or she may find something good to give him or her who has need. Now, let's look at this. This in another way. Acts chapter 20, Paul said this. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, this is the flip side of what we were just talking about. One reason we are to work is that we might have the resources to help those in need. There are those out there who have a legitimate need that needs to be met. Jesus talked about it. He went around. He noticed it. He identified the needs that people had, the needs that they weren't capable of meeting themselves. So this is the flip side of what we were just talking about. Listen to this. When we steal, we are manifesting our own selfishness. However, when we work and take part of what we earn and give to others, we are demonstrating that God has worked in our hearts to cause us to love others like he loves us. Here's something else. Look on your outline. How about a transformed way? In these next verses, Paul is challenging us to abandon our natural habits and old ways of interacting with others and to adopt a new way of interaction with others that is supernatural. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have learned over the years that sometimes you've got to deal with people in a supernatural way? You really do. Did you know all forgiveness is supernatural? There is nothing in our flesh that says, you just need to forgive the person. Nothing there. Nothing in our flesh that creates that. It's supernatural. It's a work that God does in our life. And he's saying we need to lay aside those things over here that that do not need to be there that totally misrepresent who Christ is because guess what? We've told the world that we're in Christ. And so those things that totally misrepresent Christ, they need to be laid over here And we need to put on certain things that demonstrate that we're in Christ. Okay? And that's what he's addressing here. Again, listen to this. When we walk in this new way of life, it gives clear evidence that we are being transformed. Now, before I get into this next part of the outline, let me say this. Being transformed is a continuous action. And and it implies, the way it's presented, being transformed, it implies that there's not an ending point. But guess what? There is. But as long as we're in this body, how many of you agree that we're always going to be a work in progress? We always have setbacks. You ever taken one step forward and two steps back? Yeah, that's the reason we have children, to prove that that can take. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. (laughs) But it's so easy. I mean, we're there, and we think we've made a stride. We've we've had a victory in our life, and we're even in our celebration, we, oh, my goodness, I'm slipping. (laughs) Our flesh rises up. He's saying, okay, here's some things we need to take off. Look on your outline. We need to take off resentment. We need to just get rid of it. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. The whole idea of malice is the whole idea that I want to take revenge with everything in me. That's what the word literally means. Put these things off. Now, here's what I want you to do. Don't raise your hand. I want you to sit there. I want you to think about it. Is there anyone in your life in which verse 31, your emotions and your attitude, those emotions are directed towards another person? 
Anyone. Anyone in your life. That needs to be taken off. It needs to be put off. Can I give you a, 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 a more stern word for what the Bible says about those things that need to be taken off? Listen, the Bible says they need to be crucified. The very things that we are to take off, literally, the terminology in the other parts of Scripture means this. I'm to kill these things. I'm to bring these things to a point of death. Listen, those things that are dead are not those things that are affecting me anymore. So the terminology really is a little more than just taking off a coat and putting on a new coat. It goes further than that. It's putting something to death. Number two, put on graciousness. Look at verse 32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. I can't tell you how many, Paul, how many times Paul says this over and over again. Hey, you need to forgive. And here's why you need to forgive. Guess what? You were an offense to God at one point. God could have been angry and bitter and resentful towards you and wanting to pour out his wrath and malice on you. But guess what? Because he, he, made it different, he made it different for you. He forgave you. And I want you, Paul's challenges, I want you to extend the same courtesy to those others. And let me just tell you this. Your sin is such, was such offense to God, listen, that because he is so holy and we are so sinful, that the chasm between those two things is very great. But let me tell you something about what we're holding other people to. Many times the chasm is nothing. They've just hurt you. They've offended you. Now, the enemy wants you to see it as being as great as what you were to God before. I mean, it was just, oh, and he'll feed it until the chasm grows. This is where bitterness takes place. This is where he comes in, and he starts taking over areas of your life. That's, that's when, he's, when that chasm grows. Listen, it, what we need to do is we need to deal with our anger quickly while it's still here instead of down here. Because the further it gets down, I'm just going to tell you, I've, I've harbored bitterness and hurt and all that in my life. I let one, one of it extend in my life for, a long time I'll just say and, and I'm just going to tell you it took forever to work through it but you know something if I would have worked through it here like the Bible said in the first place it would never it would never have damaged me as much as it did because it did but here, here's the point one thing I've noticed about people is that they size each other up quickly how many of you noticed that I can, how many of you, as you've gotten older, you size up people pretty quickly? How many of you have ever been wrong in that? <laughs> I've been wrong in it before. But here's what, I want you to, here's what I want you to think. If people are sizing you up, by the way, they do. How do they size you up? Do they see you as resentful and harsh? Or do you, they see you as gracious and gentle? Which, which one is it? Look at the application. All through Ephesians 4. Paul has reminded his readers clearly and repeatedly that God expects his redeemed children to be different from the way they were before he saved them. And he expects them to be different from the world around them. And when they are not, listen to this, when they are not, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Look at verse 30. He says this. He say, okay, here's what you, you need to take off, you need to put on. When you don't do this, when you do not allow this process to take place in your heart, something, listen, something in which the Holy Spirit has been assigned to do in your life. How many of you agree with that? Holy Spirit's been assigned in, in my life to, to make me more like Jesus. To, to have an attitude, to, to the transformation of taking off certain things and putting on certain things. All those things are there. So, so, so when he's not, when those things are not allowed to happen, the Bible says in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That means this. When you came to Jesus Christ on the day of your redemption, the day you received him, Holy Spirit came to indwell you. He is there to do a work in your life. When he is not allowed to do that work in your life, listen to what the Bible says. He is grieved by that. You ever grieve the Holy Spirit? We are currently, listen, let me just say this first. Look on your outline. Which does your life favor most? That which needs to be taken off or that which needs to be put on? Think about that. Are you living over here in the world of those things in which he clearly says these things must go? Not only must they go, they need to be killed. They need to be crucified. Or are you living over here where there is a work that is in progress? 
There is something that is going on. The Holy Spirit is not grieved by my life, by the choices that I make, by the attitudes that I have, by the way I'm dealing with my, the different things in my life. He's not grieved by those things. Which one does it look like? And then here's this. What are you currently taking off and putting on? Here's what I found out about my life. This is one thing that I know about my life. I will never get to the point in this body while I'm breathing, my heart is beating. I will never get to the point where I'm not in the process of being transformed. There's always going to be something that God is working on in my life. How many of you have lived long enough to know that? We move from one thing to the next. How many of you are glad that coming out of the gate when he saved you, that he said, okay, we got to deal with these things right now. This is expected. Get it right now. Didn't happen that way, did it? We worked through this issue in our life. Then we worked through the next issue in our life. We worked through the next issue in our life. And guess what? The Holy Spirit's role is to make you more like Christ, to teach you the things that need to be put off or taken off, and to teach you the things that need to be put on because you're in Christ. Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just come to you right now. We just thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for how practical Paul is here and and what he's telling us this morning. And Father, I just pray right now that if there's someone here today, Lord, that's it's just maybe they're tired. They're, it's like that one verse says, they're tired of doing good. They're growing weary because they look around and they feel defeated. They turn on the news. They look at their family. It seems to be defeat everywhere. But Father, help us to realize there's always victory in you. And that victory always comes by way of obedience. That victory always comes when when the Holy Spirit is doing a work in our lives to the point that things are being taken off and things are being put on. Father, I pray for that person that may be here today. Maybe they've never started their new life in you by coming to know you as our Lord and Savior. That process has never started for them. I pray today will be the day that process starts for them. Father, if there's a Christian here today, they know there's something in their life that's amiss. They know that the, the Holy Spirit is, they, they know you, but there's something that's amiss. There's something there that needs to be dealt with. And maybe they've allowed the enemy to speak into that situation. And maybe this morning they've come to realize they've been deceived because they felt justified in what they were doing, what they were feeling, how they were acting. Father, help them to see the deception that may be in their life. Father, we pray you have your way in this invitation. Lord, if there's someone here that believes this is the church home you've called them to be a part of, We pray you bring them also. Lord, have your way in this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Myself and